0: I am so excited to be here with co-founder of Crooked Media, co-host of Pod Saves America—that that little show you may have heard of—and now host of a new series called Offline. John Favreau, hi John.
1: Hi Emily, how are you?
0: So happy. I mean, I left out of your introduction the most important thing of all—that you are Emily's husband and dad of Charlie, who I believe is the first boy that my daughter has ever met. And I wow, think that, is that, that right? I think it's true. And if marriage still exists in 30 years, which jury's still out, that would be a very cute beat cute, I have
1: to say. I think, that, I think that'll be perfect. I think it's so funny that this is the first time you and I are really chatting, even though you've been in my backyard with your child.
0: This is sort <laughs> of shows modern parenting. you how much I work. Parenting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Well, it's fitting that this is our first official conversation, because this is something that I hear you talk about all the time. I, I listen to you talk about all the time, and it's something that I am never shutting up about i'm so glad that you're talking about this in offline for for those people who haven't heard the new series yet can you just tell us a little bit about what you're digging into and why you started to dig into it and then i'll have about a million things that i want to ask you about it
1: yes for sure so this is a series it's an interview series about all the ways that the internet is breaking our brain and um, what we can do about it. And I wanted to talk to people in all different fields, not just politics and media, but sports, comedy, entertainment, business, etc. And, you know, look, the internet being annoying is not necessarily like a a new idea, but I wanted to do the show for two reasons, one personal and one broader. Personal (laughs) I found myself during the pandemic, like everyone else, online all the time, even more. That little notification on your phone that tells you like how long you've been online each week, Mm -hmm. how long you've been using the phone, like it would go up every single week during the pandemic. And I started thinking that like all the reasons the internet was bad were sort of amplified by the fact that we were having more contact with people and mostly strangers online and less contact with the people in our real lives because we were all stuck inside. And I started feeling like it was making me a little bit crazier. Mm. Um, and then obviously the country has been through some shit in the last couple of years. <laughs> but thinking about the fact that we all went through a pandemic, a very divisive election, which then turned into an insurrection, um, the protests following George Floyd's murder, right, like all of these gigantic things we went through, mostly online. And I don't think it helped. In fact, I thought it hurt quite a bit that we were doing this all online. And so my sort of running thesis was that, like, you know, th- this this project of democracy is difficult under the best possible circumstances, when mm. there's just 300 million plus people trying to live and work together in relative peace and prosperity, um, sort of on our own by shutting everyone inside and making us just interact mainly online with each other through these platforms, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, or anything else facebook um, it, it's it's made the project that much harder. so for my yeah. own like personal sanity and I think the sanity of the republic, I thought I we should talk about this more and I should interview more people about it more because it's sort of that thing in the background that we're complaining about here and there. But I don't know that we have sufficiently examined it beyond what we see in the headlines about Facebook or disinformation or all that kind of stuff, because I think the real problems go much deeper than that.
0: I agree with you. And I think, obviously, everything was exacerbated during the pandemic and made worse and, and certainly made more online. That was our only means of interaction and connection and experiencing anything beyond the four walls uh, within which we all live. But I feel like things got worse in the internet during the Trump administration. That's obviously the, the, yes. the easiest thing I could possibly say. But I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg scenario. And I'm wondering if you have an opinion on it. I don't know if the internet became a hellscape because of Trump or Trump became what Trump was because of the internet hellscape. I, I feel like it's a little bit of a vicious cycle.
1: That's a, it's such a great question. The, the first person I interviewed for the series is uh, Gia Tolentino, who mm. wrote Trick Mirror, a collection of essays, uh, many of which are about the internet and and, and how the internet is breaking our brains. This is why I wanted to interview her first. And I was trying to ask her this question too, like, when did the internet go bad? Um. Mm. And we both started talking about how, like I I can remember in, you know, I was on the Obama campaign in 2008 and the internet was good. Organizing online was good. It helped us win the election. Everything was wonderful. Um, I think that by the 2012 reelect, Twitter had started becoming quite annoying because Twitter basically was the assignment editor for uh, the political media. And I remember contending with that. But I also think like, so I left the White House in 2013, and I had been a Twitter lurker before then. I had a Twitter account, but I wasn't allowed to tweet because I was a White House employee. And when okay. I left in 2013, I was like, well, now I'm going to finally say what's on my mind. <laughs> you were <know? And laughs> freed. Like, right, I'm freed. So I like fire off tweets and get in arguments with Republicans on Twitter. And like it was, I guess, cathartic for a little bit, mildly amusing, but it quickly became – sort of annoying, I thought. And then then Trump started running, then the 2016 election happened. And I, I do think that once Trump won, the beginning months after that, I think the internet and specifically Twitter was okay, because I ended up like meeting a lot of people I wouldn't have otherwise met who were all in the same place, whether you were like, Someone on the center right or someone from the far left, everyone was like, okay, Trump is president. we all need like to figure out, figure out a way to work together to beat this guy, to stop this threat. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of organizing and conversation that happened because of, I think specifically Twitter that I think was helpful. It soon got a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I do think that to your question about the chicken or egg thing, like Trump in some way is the perfect internet candidate. Right. Like, like, you know, one complaint about Twitter is that it sort of it strips away context. It strips away nuance. It doesn't allow for sort of thoughtful debate. um, It causes us to overvalue our own opinions. Like all of these things are characteristics of Donald Trump. (laughs) Um, That's exactly right. You know, like he is the I mean, I used to think I used to say about him that he is like a cable TV addict who yes. became president, <laughs> right? Like he is the guy who just yelled shit at the television all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the internet in many ways, supercharges that phenomenon of like watching cable television because it is faster. It is even shorter than what you see on cable TV. And it is even angrier, nastier, because unlike cable TV, you can interact with it instead of yes. just watch it passively. And I think that, like, when you throw Trump into that equation, it just makes it all worse.
0: I think you're exactly right, and I think that what you hit on is, you know, Trump was obviously addicted to cable news, but he made everyone else in the country addicted to both cable and to Twitter. And I think yep. that I can only speak to this personally as a reporter, and I think you are probably in the same boat. Or, or Two of the very few people in this country who could say that professionally we needed to be very online over the last Mm -hmm. six years. And I think that I used it as an excuse, or at least my brain was able to lean on that. And and really, I think I was just addicted. I, I felt like I had to be the most informed. I had to read every take, I had to read every tweet, just constantly be checking my phone in order to be informed in case I was asked about them or I had to talk about them to a source. And I'm sure you feel like. You know, you guys are recording constantly and have to know everything on on everything. But in reality, um, I had a child four and a half months ago and I really stopped checking Twitter, like completely. And yeah. I now have, I realize I was addicted and it was not totally serving me in any way, shape or form. I just couldn't help myself. And I think that the country writ large was addicted to news and addicted to consumption of news over the last six years in an insanely unhealthy way.
1: A very unhealthy way. And and I think, and you're right, I mean, for I, I did the same thing as you. I told myself that it was my job. I record a podcast twice a week. And even if that wasn't my job, I, as a Democrat and, an, and a strategist, an activist, an organizer, whatever, wanted to figure out how to beat Donald Trump. I thought it yes. was important to me personally. I thought it was important to the country, even if I didn't have this job. And so I told myself that that's why I'm online. But you soon start realizing that we are hit every day with a flood of information, much of it bad, much of it things that we cannot do anything about, you know, and I I think we can do a lot about a lot of things, right? I, I advocate political organizing and advocacy and all of that stuff, but not every bad headline or offensive tweet or mean tweet or something that Donald Trump says is something that we can actually affect change over, right? And I don't think we can sort of tell the difference anymore. Mm. And I think that's a real problem because, you know, there was this thing that the resistance types would say during the Trump years where it's like, he's trying to distract us from X or Y. And like, I don't think Donald Trump's that smart to distract people, but it's true that as a country, we are perpetually distracted all the time because of the flood of information we're getting through these platforms.
0: It's not just the flood of information too. It's like it's a flood of takes. And I thought I, I listened to all the episodes of Offline that exists right now. I'm excited to hear more, but, but you spoke to Peter Hamby, who was a former colleague of mine, doubly both at, at Vanity Fair and at CNN. And uh, he's now at Snapchat running news. And I think that you guys hit on the fact that there's so much, um, I'm going to call it take-based journalism on Twitter, that you're you're not only getting so much of it, but you're getting so much of a spin on it that it's not really helpful to anybody.
1: It's not. And it, because also it, you know, and, and Gia talks about the, one of the problems with the internet is it causes us to overvalue our opinions mm. and our takes. And someone tweeted uh, a couple weeks ago, like, Hey, for those of you who tweet about politics, serious question. I'm not trying to be snarky. Why do you do it? What is your purpose? Mm. And it really made me think because <laughs> I was like, I don't know. What am I well, trying what, to do What here? is your
0: answer to that? If you were to respond to that Twitter that tweet, which would be an insane thing for you to do, but if you were to respond to it, what would you have said?
1: So I thought about it for a while and mm. and my answer was, okay, what's useful for me to tweet is Information about politics that may help people get involved that they wouldn't otherwise get. I can amplify interesting stories Mm -hmm. that I think people would enjoy or that might help people think about politics and maybe the way that I want them to think about it that Mm -hmm. they might not get on their own. Or I'm actually trying to persuade people. And when I say trying to persuade people, it's not like I'm trying. I don't think like a tweet of mine is going to cause a Trump voter to be like, oh, I'm going to become a Democrat now. But as a former Democratic strategist, Democratic staffer, I think there are certain messages that the Democratic Party uh, could disseminate that are more effective than others. There are certain strategies that might be more effective than others. So, okay, so maybe I'll tweet about that. But then but but those aren't the only things I tweet about. Now, look, I can tweet jokes once in a while. I think that's fine and harmless, whatever. But like, it made me think a lot about the the, the slams or like highlighting some Republican who said something bad or did something mm. bad. Like, if I'm just tweeting about that, like, what is that tweet actually doing? <laughs> like, uh, okay, I pointed out that Ted Cruz is an asshole. Great. W- what did that change?
0: <laughs> sure. Well, I think that you're getting into... Another episode of yours. You had Monica Lewinsky on, who personally I, I adore her as a friend and love her as a She's colleague and her Vanity Fair family. And the episode um, was, I think, Monica at her best, talking about a subject she obviously knows a great deal about, and that's public shaming. And I think that the internet is sort of this this perfect storm of a place where you have anonymity, uh, you have both media and social media pushing you towards things that are the most base level bad and mm-hmm. you have people who are just meaner to a screen than they would be in, in person and i think you know you saying dunking on a republican on twitter is not because you're a mean person but those kinds of things are very easy to do online and i don't know that they have a positive outcome and i don't think that Online, you need to have a positive effect in order to share it. I actually think it's the opposite. There's there's way more of a reason to have a negative effect in the world online. It's incentivized, in fact.
1: I mean, I am like maybe one of the least confrontational people mm-hmm. I know. Sometimes to a fault, I've been told. Uh, <laughs> so the idea that like I half the shit that I tweet, the idea that I would say that to the person's face if I met them. Mm. is, is crazy. (laughs) Like, like, even if I, I have Republican family members, you know, and back in the day, when we used to travel and see people, um, Mm -hmm. I would see them for holidays and they would start talking to me about politics. And I would usually try to steer the conversation towards something else. (laughs) Like I wouldn't Mm. yell at them. I wouldn't get in big fights at the dinner table. I'd like calmly try to tell them, why I disagree and I try to persuade them that they're wrong but I would do so in like a very respectful and polite way or try to make jokes even though they're my relatives and I know them really well or Mm. or friends you know so the idea that if I like saw a random Republican on the street like you do on Twitter I would start yelling at them or getting in a fight with them over something is silly to me like that's not Mm. how I would act in person but yet that's how we all act online all the time
0: That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Well, what's interesting about that is that I think you're totally right. The, the way that we act on the internet has, has had no relation to the way we act in person, and I... I I'm um, in the midst of sort of writing a story about this. So I think a lot about uh, online shaming and there was this feminist who wrote in the 70s about like the consequences of shaming people publicly. And mm-hmm. and obviously there was no uh, Twitter when she was writing this story or this, this article. And she was extolling all the ways in which there are personal consequences to you as the shamer if you are calling somebody out in person and you, you lose all of that personal consequence. But I think that for the first time last January, we sort of saw what happens on the internet turn into behavior in real life. And we saw it in a very consequential way in Washington. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how we're starting to see online, terrible, hateful behavior translate into real world behavior in a a real and very scary way.
1: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously we saw it on January 6th. But even since then, you know, some of this, I think, is is pandemic related. There's a lot of rage that was built up during the pandemic for a host of different reasons. But all those stories about people being nasty to flight attendants on planes or other Mm. passengers um, at sporting events, people, you know, it's just like people are are getting nastier and, and meaner in real life. And I don't know if, you know, some people could say, well, that's always been the case. It's just that we know about it more because of the internet. And mm-hmm. so these things go viral. But I don't know. <laughs> like, I kind of think that, you know, if if most of the interact, most of the social human interactions we have are on these platforms that encourage our worst impulses, then of course, it's going to bleed into real life. Of course, when we are stressed out from, you know, being stuck in our homes for a year and a half we're going to have a shorter temper when someone cuts in front of us driving or we're on an airplane and, you know, we've been waiting for five hours to take off and stuff like that. Like, I, I do think the more time we spend online, the more it can easily blur the line between online world and real world. And there aren't a lot of spaces where where just like meeting people strangers or, or, or acquaintances one-on-one without all of the algorithms pushing us one way or the other and just sort of like debating peacefully or just getting to know each other or hashing out our differences, you know, like that, that that's part of the issue too, I think.
0: Well, when you're not taking the moment on the internet anymore, when you're removing that second pause online between when you think something and when you write something on the internet, uh, yeah. when you've removed that impulse from your day-to-day habits on the internet, it's hard to then say, okay, but I'm not going to remove that impulse in person. Your brain is just reconfigured at that point. And I think we've lost the ability to take a pause both on the internet and in in real life. And I think that that pause is so vital. And I am worried that we've gone past a point where that pause is just like, we don't get it back anymore because of the way the internet has just completely reshaped our, our neural tubes or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm interviewing, um, Charlie Warzel uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll talk about Facebook and everything, but something he wrote about Facebook stuck with me, which is like, you can change the platform all you want. You can tweak the algorithms. We can break up Facebook. We can do all these things, but like, we are now so enmeshed in these platforms and they have probably changed and rewired our brain so much that, like absent platforms, like you just said, we, it it may have rewired us. It may have changed our behavior. And that, you know, like if you've ever done sort of a technology detox, right? If you ever put your phone down for a while, even for a short while, it's, it's hard. Like you, you find yourself checking your pocket for your phone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You find yourself sometimes like, a little distracted, a little agitated, Uh, like you just like need that dopamine hit of new information. Uh, What's going on? I'm looking for an alert, you know, like it's, it's, it's really bad.
0: It is. And I will say like, so I had a kid and I did not check the news for like uh, weeks. Maybe I definitely did not open, open Twitter. And when I started sort of emerging from a cocoon, I now use Twitter in a completely different way. And I think it makes me, I used to think not knowing everything, every tweet, every take, every story that was a thing on Twitter would make me a worse reporter. And I think now the way in which I use Twitter makes me a better reporter. I'll tell you why and you tell me if you think this is crazy as now I'm going to W an expert of the internet. Perfect. Um, I use it way more intentionally. I maybe scroll for like, three minutes a day maximum, just scroll, see what people are talking about. That's that's a h- high number for me now. But I use it very intentionally. Like if I will go and read a story on the New York Times or obviously Vanity Fair or the Atlantic or whatever, and I want to know more about that story, or I'm watching something on TV and I want to know what other people are saying about that thing that I'm watching on TV, I intentionally look for one specific thing and see what people are saying about that one specific thing. And then I'm out. I'm not looking aimlessly at Twitter anymore, which is what I used to spend hours doing every day. And I feel like not knowing what everyone is, is what all the takes are on Twitter makes me more like most people in this country. It doesn't make me more like people in Washington or New York or Los Angeles or all the places that I've lived. It makes me more like a, a normal in this country. And I think understanding how a normal uh, perceives what is important is a much more valuable thing as a journalist than knowing every single thing that everyone in New York or Washington or Los
1: Angeles is talking about online.
0: Does that make sense to you?
1: Uh, it makes perfect sense. I could not agree more. I mean, I had, I had a slightly different experience though, similar in ways like you know when Charlie was born in July. Um, it it was unexpected that we were going to have a kid during the uh, election even before the pandemic, because I was like, I'm going to be incredibly busy during the election. I'm worried I'm not going to have enough time to be a dad if we have a a child then. And so like, let's wait till after the election. Obviously, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're in the middle of the pandemic. And I told myself when Charlie was first born, like, it's okay, these first couple months, this is the 2020 election, everything's on the line. And so I did not take myself away from Twitter. I buried my head in Twitter the whole time during the first months of his his life. And I think I was a much worse parent and I did not bond with him the way that I should have in those early months because I used as an excuse the fact that I needed to pay attention to the news because of the election. Mm. And I was continually agitated and I was like, I don't know about this parenthood thing and this is, might not work out. So anyway, fast forward, the election's over. And, you know, once they become like, Five, six, seven months and they have a personality and they're smiling at you, you know, that I spent more time with them. And finally, as I started spending time with him as he grew up in these like last five or six months, seven months, um, I put my phone down or I try to put my phone down when I was spending time with him, and I found so much joy and fulfillment in hanging out with him, like without a phone around me. Mm. And then that's how it started. But then I started using it like you just talked about, which is, okay, if I'm preparing for the pod, I'm going to like look at Twitter and look at like takes on interesting articles. And I'm also going to just like read more, not books. I know that's hard for me, but at least read more like long form pieces. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I realized that it got my brain going in a different way. And I started thinking creatively again about, like forming my own opinions as mm. opposed to just like reading all of the other opinions out there and trying to like figure out a take based on other takes. Like maybe I should try to figure out my own take based mm. on just like reading something instead of reading what like 50 fucking people had to say about the the bipartisan infrastructure bill who like sit in Washington. That's not really, that's not really that helpful.
0: I agree with you. And I, I also think that um, expanding your mind and making you a better thinker makes you a better thinker, right? You don't have to be a thinker who yeah. reads a lot of takes about the same stuff to just be a better thinker. And so you come up with a, a version of the world that makes more sense to you. You brought up Charlie. And so I'm going to to zero. And I also think of what you're describing the first four months of having a, a baby. Uh, it's very similar, particularly for a lot of dads that I know um yeah. it's just it's hard it's hard for dads in the beginning i think uh, in a different way that it's hard for mobs
1: yeah no one told no one told me that no one prepared me for that one
0: <laughs> yeah we, we we talk about it a lot over here and yeah. uh it's 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 a very different thing you're experiencing this in a totally different way but i'm thinking a lot now about what the internet is going to be like for my daughter and uh you and i are sitting here bitching and moaning about uh all the ways it's breaking our brain and I am terrified for the ways in which it will break her brain one day and I like I'm already making decisions that I both like and don't like about her on the internet and I don't show her face on the internet but I have my phone around her and I can she's four and a half months and I can see her being like that thing is cool and I cringe every single time I see that twinkle in her eye and I literally throw my phone across the room and (laughs) I just I like I don't know what to do and I'm sure you're thinking about this a lot and I don't know if you've come up with any answers about that
1: we have not because you know I think it's easy to tell yourself okay we're gonna be one of those families like no screen time until x age and then as you know when you're a parent and you're busy and you're doing a million things you're like okay he wants to watch sesame street for 15 minutes that's going to be fine or mm-hmm. he's going to watch something at least educational that that's oh, you tell yourself that's going to yes. be fine it i mean funny i facetime
0: we- my, my my i you i know you guys are like this too our parents aren't local both both sets of grandparents are on the east coast and so we facetime with them every day and i I think net net, it's a positive thing. But I'm like, is she just staring at the screen, and that's going to be her thing? It, it drives me crazy every day.
1: Well, it's so hard. He so Charlie will come into my office, and because I did this once, which was like uh, on YouTube, I showed him an Elmo video, which he's obsessed with, and he sat on my lap. Now every time he runs into my office and sees me while I'm working, he says Elmo, 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 and points to the <laughs> points to my laptop. Game over. Yeah. And like, what am I? I feel bad. And it's also, it's like nice cuddling with him and he sits on my lap and we do this together but i'm like i don't think this is good for him and this isn't even this is just passive viewing which isn't great but it's not even the interactive stuff that happens when you figure out when they figure out like how to use a phone or the internet and uh, you know i said this to to gia during our interview too but like just watching him run around the house play with toys amuse himself distract himself with sort of non-online things, toys, mm-hmm. books, everything else is like such a reminder of the joy that that can bring a child. And then when I watch him watching a screen, I'm like, oof, what's happening here? Right. Like, is he, zombie. is he learning yes. anything? Is he just a zombie? Like, so I, you know, I've been, tr- we try to read to him a lot and then even, I've gone like a step further from just reading to him. Cause my parents did this with me all the time. I remember like my dad would put me to bed by telling me stories and making up stories or telling me stories about his childhood and mm. his friends. And just that act of like being creative with your child and t- telling them stories, um, I do think sort of can help maybe spark a creativity and, and like, uh, you want to like teach your kids how to think, you know? Um, and so I've been trying to do that a little bit more, talking to him, narrate things that I'm doing, just trying to do things that aren't like, passive and looking at a screen, but it's hard.
0: Speaking of being being creative, and, and I thought about this a lot in your interview with Monica, if you think about the risk now of what the right has co-opted cancer culture as, and, and the left just talks about accountability culture, I caution anybody who wants to get into public life now. And I I say, even if people like I've had friends who are up for big jobs, and I am like, well, you know, what's going to happen, right? You know, you know, what's going to happen, and you should do it. And you're the right person for this job. But just be aware of what could be coming for you. And, and rightfully, a lot of the times and wrongfully, a lot of the times, uh, when you think about Washington, and I know that you or advise people all the time or talk to people all the time who want to put their hat in the ring, who want to take on roles in public life. uh, What role does the internet play in either uh, convincing people into or out of taking a risk and running for office or taking a public job? Uh, And and I'm wondering if you come across that in your conversations.
1: Yeah, no, I think think it's pushing a lot of people away. Um, And look, this is, it's a really tough subject to talk about because, you know, the, the term cancel culture is now so loaded that yes. you complain about cancel culture and, you know, it's like you're a white dude with a sub stack or Barry Weiss or something like that. And you're like, yes. oh, you know, powerful people who fuck up shouldn't be held accountable. And that's not the case. Powerful people should be held accountable. In fact, I think I talked about this with Monica. One of the things I thought about when I watched the um, American crime story impeachment uh, and her public shaming doc as well, as I'm like, okay, well, if Twitter was around back in 1998, like maybe Bill Clinton would have been held more accountable than he was, you know? Like maybe, 100%. because maybe a lot of people whose voices, um, who didn't get to have a voice uh, back then would have been heard, like Monica or, or a lot of other people, right? And maybe when those fucking late night hosts said the most horrible things about her, disgusting things about her, like, yeah, a couple of them could have used a cancellation. You know, and so like, I do think it's good to, to like, that there are consequences and that the gatekeepers have fallen away so that more people have a voice, particularly marginalized communities. Like, I think that is all a good thing, but I also think we have gotten to the point where just average people, not like powerful corporations or powerful, politicians, average people, you know, like we're not giving people, we're not giving people space to make mistakes. Mm. And what worries me is someone makes a mistake. They say something bad or they say something that reveals that um, they have not evolved with the culture, maybe because they're a little old, maybe because they've been protected by their privilege for a long time. Right. So they say something really fucking stupid and they try to apologize and no one accepts the apology. In fact, Mm -hmm. the apology gets picked apart and everyone piles on the apology and now there's a big thing. And so we are then saying we're not allowing people the space to make a mistake and then grow. And so what that tells other people is if you make a mistake, you shouldn't apologize because it's not really going to work anyway. So who yeah. fucking cares? And what that then does is we are, we are selecting for, especially in public life and politics, and this is where Trump comes back in, we are selecting for the most shameless people. Mm. The people who say... If I go say something and do something offensive and people give me shit for it, it's not going to matter because I'm not going to apologize and you can't shame me and you can't make me embarrassed. So I'm going to be perfect for public life. I'm going to be perfect for politics. And all the other people who are worried about making a mistake or saying something wrong um, or, or, or taking a bad picture, or whatever it may be, um, aren't going to serve because they're worried that their life's going to get picked apart by this. And like, I don't want to over-exaggerate the consequences, right? Like you do, I have done, I have said and done things that people don't agree with and that are mad at me about, right? And what you sometimes just do is say, okay, you're mad at me. I take that criticism. Some of it I try to incorporate into my behavior and change my behavior. Some of it I don't agree with. And I, but I try to say, I deserve that. I'm a public figure. People can say whatever they want. That, that part's fine. But I do think like some of the pylons are creating or at least pushing people away from saying what they want to say doing what they want to do and entering public life which is tough no matter what but i do think we want like we want more public servants because a lot of the ones we have are sort of shitty
0: i would say that's that's possibly an a gross understatement <laughs> I- In hearing that, I think you're 100% right. And I think that there is obviously such a a grave consequence to public shaving, both for people um, who are public people and and people who are private people. Um, And I think you're for anyone who wants a great listen, I would go ahead and listen to to Monica talk about that with you, John. Um, In thinking about that, coupled with the way that our brains are being reshaped, coupled with the way that journalism has sort of turned into this mess on Twitter what's what's the solution here
1: yeah no it's the it's the million dollar question i mean look there's there's a sort of policy solutions which are um difficult because now you're talking about like people legislating how to fix algorithms uh <laughs> which seems tricky yes. um, though there have, i think we're finally getting to the point and i think francis hogan um, has Helped us move. Helped us move along to this point where the political conversation around this isn't just about free speech and who gets to and disinformation, right? Which disinformation is obviously a huge problem, but it is it is more uh, amplification than anything else, and, and, and we're sort of focused on the algorithms, right? The algorithms that prize engagement above all else. And reward sort of the type of engagement that is mean and nasty and enraging and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think there's like, you know, there's there's some bill now where you can have like like it, it gives people the option to have a, a feed that's free of algorithms, right? Um, and so people have talked about messing with the algorithms. But again, this is it's tough. Uh, politically tough because we don't really have the political will to do much at all, let alone like pass major legislation that would sort of change a lot of these tech platforms. You do sort of wonder if, since a lot of the people who work for these tech companies uh, tend to have progressive values, that if at some point these very young workforces will say like, they'll either quit or it'll be harder for places like Facebook to recruit new engineers and new employees because of this. Mm. Um, so y- you hope for maybe some internal change. But I do think that a lot of, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series is, I think a lot of this is happens on an individual level, level, right? Like all of us have a role to play here in our own behavior and how we act. Like I try to like think before I tweet now. Uh, I try to like wait 10 seconds before I fire off a tweet about something. I try mm. to think about like, am, do I need to be this snarky? um is this tweet adding value am i persuading someone with this um i try to think like do i need to be on my phone right now if i'm out with friends or if i'm seeing family or if i'm playing with emily and charlie like do i need to be checking the phone do do i need to really for my job um do i need to know this piece of information or am i just doing this out of habit uh if i'm like sitting in bed like uh, one thing that happens is i wake up at you know 5:30 in the morning cuz charlie starts crying and You know, uh, I can't sleep through that. And so, uh, but instead of going downstairs, I like grab my phone and I just start scrolling. And I tell myself the scrolling is to catch up on the news for an hour before I Mm. go start the day. But that's not really what happens. (laughs) Like I'm just scrolling Twitter for an hour and like I didn't learn much. So now I'm trying to get out of bed, go downstairs, make coffee, sit in front of the computer, go to the New York Times, go to the Washington Post and just read the news without the platforms to just try to educate myself and get my brain going in a different way. So I do think that there are things that we can do on an, on an individual basis. And I think the more we're aware that we have these habits, like the, the, the easier it will be for us to change them because right now I think we do it without much awareness at all.
0: Well, I think, I think what you're basically saying is be more intentional and take a pause, right? I think yeah. just, just recognize the way that your brain has been Morphed and changed by these platforms, and when you think about it like that, and you say, "I'm going to intentionally not pick up my phone when I wake up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water, uh, and I'm just going to go back to sleep instead," or, or, you know, count back to from from thirty before I pick up my phone and you'll fall back to sleep. I think that that's just a very easy thing to do, and I think it does change the way you you take in news and the way you take in the world. I think that's very smart.
1: Well, you talked about, you said intentional, which is such uh, exactly the right word and like not to get all dark, but I think part of this is I'm 40 now mm-hmm. and you think about mortality and you're like, okay, how do I want to spend every hour part of, part of this is having children too, right? Yes. Like, how do I want to spend every hour of every day that I have left, <laughs> you know, which is yeah. hopefully a long time. But you start thinking about it a little bit more when you hit 40 and you have a kid and like is is the 3 hours I spent today on Twitter was that like a good use of my time on this earth? <laughs> I don't I, think so. <laughs> I,
0: I think that that you and I are both in a very similar life stage where we have we have young children and so we're thinking more about the state of our world and the state of the world and, and all of that and and how we're spending our time and micromanaging schedules and getting very few minutes of actual downtime. So I think we're in this this very specific era of our lives. But I think that generally the public is in this era in which we were so addicted to every little melodrama that was happening in the news over the last you know half decade, because everything was so consequential. And I think we all need to break ourselves of this addiction cycle. I can't tell you the most common conversation I have outside of how is her nap right now? is <laughs> Like, stop, stop, freaking out about every little thing that is happening in the news. And that's not to say that things that are happening in Washington now are not important, because I think they are gravely important. And I think that they will impact all of us presently and for years to come. But we don't need to treat every single development like it's the end of the world, as we did over the last five years. And I think we have been so conditioned to watching cable news and checking Twitter and obsessively refreshing what's happening, that we've lost the thread a little bit and i think that we can be intentional about the way we consume our news and think about politics and think about what's happening in washington and this is a good moment to think about that
1: again it goes back to what can i change what can i affect and what is beyond my control like mm. we're talking as this kyle rittenhouse trial is happening and i see everybody tweeting about it and everyone's very interested and like yeah I'm i'm deeply interested in the outcome of this trial. But I think about it like I think about the coverage of most trials, which is I can't have any effect on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Correct. None of my tweets will change it. This is about the judge and the jurors and the prosecutor and the defense attorney. That's it. They will determine the shape of what happens in that trial. They will determine the outcome. And I am just a spectator. So why am I wasting my time reading a million tweets about it and stories about it let's just find out what happens. Then we can all react. Then we can figure out if it was a travesty of justice or not. And we can all figure out what to do. But as of right now, like there's nothing we can do. (laughs) Nothing we can do.
0: And I think, I think that you can be a good informed citizen without being an obsessive Twitter scroller. And I think that over the last half decade, there the, the line was blurred. I think that everyone was sort of in this Olympic, uh, like a extremely long Olympic event to be the most informed citizen because they they were so helpless that information was power. And I, yeah. I just think we're in a different season now. It's Everything is important and, and the world is still a scary place, but it's just a little bit different. And I think that the way in which we think about the internet and news and happenings around the world, the temperature needs to be put back down a little bit so that everyone lives a more sane, balanced life. It just, it got out of hand for myself. And I think for, for most people that I talk to, and I think everyone can just live a happier, healthier existence without feeling like they need to know every single detail of every single thing that's happening the moment it happens.
1: I. Couldn't agree more, uh, at least until Trump runs for president again.
0: Ugh, God, <laughs> just the thought of it gives me such PTSD. I I, can't, like,
1: I, can't, I don't know. I'm,
0: I, I'm bef- immediately befriending Bezos and going to Mars. That's the only I,
1: solution. I, it, it's something that I. every time I catch myself thinking about it, I have to put it aside because I'm like, again— There's nothing I can do about this now. And getting anxious over it is not going to do anything. So I just got to think about something else. Just got to think about something else.
0: (laughs) Just don't do it. Well, I will give everyone listening to this the ultimate distraction. Go listen to Offline. It comes out every Sunday. Is that right, John? Every Sunday listen to it. I have found it so useful as I worry about all the things that you talk to. And I'm so grateful for you coming by here and and giving us your wisdom and sharing all the things that you do. Everyone go listen to PodSafe America as well. And we are just so happy to have you here, John. So thank you.
1: Thanks for having me, Emily. This was really fun.
0: Thank you to my guest, John Favreau, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a good review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for the production work, and of course, our producer, Brett Fuchs. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please support them anyway you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week.